semester we're preaching through Leviticus, which I know is why you came. And uh, this 3,500-year-old text for an ancient people group in a foreign land, as you can imagine, presents some challenges to us. Uh, actually, out of curiosity, has anybody been reading Leviticus this semester because of, we're preaching through it? I got one hand partly up. Heck yeah, you know who you are, Jewel in your crown. That's awesome. Okay, um, so, so this, this book of the Bible has cultic practices that we don't often understand as teaching and laws related to cultural realities, which we don't share. But we can learn something from other cultures, right? About how to care for the poor. About our use of resources and money. About our consumption practices and our sexual health. About our love for neighbors, our care for animals. More importantly, our Lord Jesus Christ knew himself to be fulfilling the commands and the promises on display in the book of Leviticus. There's even an entire New Testament book which is dedicated to drawing parallels between Jesus and Leviticus. This is at the center of the Torah, which was the sort of literary center for Jesus' Bible, what he read. This is the kind of book he would have read as a very young boy, and he understood himself in light of these covenant promises and commands. I commend them to you. We're preaching through them this semester, and I hope that's actually some kindness and some help if you try to make your way through yourself sometime. And my hope this whole semester is that each week we could actually see the good news of the kingdom of God somehow presented to us through the lens of Leviticus. And that seeing this would actually be disarming, healing, and maybe even nourishing for our faith. And so by way of some kind of just recap in case this helpful for you to just hear themes repeated or whatever, this semester we've looked at how the gospel is proclaimed in Leviticus. We've talked about how the law can be understood as grace, that all of God's creation project is actually about us being with him, about how accommodating God is, and how we're all called to be priests in this world. We've looked at how to engage really hard stories of the Bible, how important it is to be people who name good and evil, and that God makes peace with us through his atoning sacrifices. Tonight, we'll be looking at our calling to be holy. How is the call to be holy a good thing? How is it a good thing for us and a good thing for the world? If you haven't yet, refresh your order of worship page. The scripture's on there. Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth... And the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our scripture reading tonight comes from the beginnings of Leviticus chapters 18 and 19. They're just little introductions to different speeches uh, in the book of Leviticus. It's like a bunch of different times God speaks to Moses or Aaron and, and to them and to God's people. And so these are introductory pieces. And, and from here, from Leviticus 18 and 19, through the whole end of the book, there's an outward movement. You can think of Leviticus like a mountain with the first half of the book ascending to the mountain. And at the top would be the atonement, which Caleb preached on a couple weeks back. And then the second half of the book is descending back down this mountain and back out into the world, bearing the peace that the people of God have with him. Peace on earth and goodwill toward all humanity. They're going out for that. And as we descend into this mountain and go back out into the world, God speaks to all the people through Moses, telling them that they are not to be like the Egyptians where they came from. If you remember the Hebrew people, the Israelites, those are kind of interchangeable words for the people of God. 
Okay? That the Israelites came from Egypt. God saved them out of slavery. It's very important that you understand that story or you hear it or ask questions about it to understand all of what Jesus is up to. The entire Bible, all of cosmic history is an Exodus account. All of it. That's another story. Okay, but you should know that one. The people of Israel came from, from the Egyptians, and they're not supposed to be like the Egyptians, nor are they to be like the Canaanites to the people whom they're going as they descend down this mountain and out into the world. Rather, they should be not like the Egyptians or the Canaanites. They should be holy because the Lord God is holy. Holy, when referring to God, if you say God is holy or something like this, um, that, that means everything which makes God unique. God, the, the Israelites would say, is actually so holy that we don't even, we have to say holy, holy, holy. When holiness refers to anything else, though, it means something or someone that's set apart for that holy God. God is telling his people that they should be set apart in the world for him. And this means that they're going to live in distinct ways for him, not like the Egyptians or the Canaanites. They're going to belong to him and look different than anybody else because of him. And the entire rest of the book of Leviticus, from chapters 18 all the way through 27, it's dedicated to unpacking what it looks like to be holy unto Yahweh. In most ancient Near Eastern temples, there was an idol in the middle of their temple. We'll, we'll think of the ancient Near East just littered with little tents and tabernacles and temples to different cults, cultic gods. And there was a little idol in the middle of that temple that was supposed to represent, it's supposed to look like in some way or image in some way what the god that they worshipped was like. And so if they believed that their god that they worshipped was really strong, then that, that little idol would look like something that was strong. Caleb mentioned the gods Azazel um, that come up in Leviticus that, that the, the, the goat of the sin offering was sent out to because God is communicating these kinds of ways of life don't belong amongst my people. Those belong to the ways of the world. The ways, the ways of the world which belong to Azazel, the false gods out there that everybody's bowing in worship to. Well, that, that means goat god. And it's very likely that the idols in the middle of the Azazel temples look like goats because they believe this god was like a goat. If they worshipped gods that were fertility gods, their idols would have had some imagery that looked like fertility. The Israelite people were the only group of people in the entire world that we've ever known that had no idol in the middle of their temple. Everybody else has something that's been made in the middle representing their God. Only the Israelites do not have an idol. They were forbidden, in fact, from making idols in the center of their temple. And rather than a carved image or a stone idol, what was in the very center of their holy of holies, the most set apart of the most set apart space where the people were to encounter God, rather than there being an idol there, there was an empty space there called the mercy seat on top of the ark. It was empty. And that's not a space you put an idol. That's a space for God to fill however and whenever God wants to fill it. Rather than making images of God that they would worship, the Israelites believed God had already made images of himself. And his images were what? What is made in God's image? Yes. 
God's images were his people. And rather than being dead, carved, or, or, or hewn things in the middle of, of a, a religious temple, the Israelites believed God made alive humans to walk out of the temple and out into the world, reflecting to the world what God was like. You see how different that is. Are they strong like the gods of war, which they are cults worship? Do they look like goats? You know? What do these images what do these humans look like? And, and what do they do? And what does that say about what their God, that their imaging is like? We are made in God's image, and the Israelites believed that we are intended to reflect to the world what our God is like. What's happening in the second half of Leviticus is God's instruction for his people about how they can reflect to the world what he is like. That's what it means to be holy. God has rescued his people and made peace with them. He's atoned for their sin. They are clean and made new, and now they're being sent out. And as they are sent out, they shouldn't be like the people they left, nor should they be like the people that they're going to. They should be distinct, holy, like God. So that when people see them, they know what their God is like. Don't be like the Egyptians. Don't be like the Canaanites. Instead, Here's what it looks like for you to express holiness in a way that reflects who I am. You can read Leviticus 18 and 19. You can keep going to the end. We're going to cover different chapters in the coming weeks, but, but 18 and 19 is kind of where we are today. If you want to read on your own, um, you can, uh, I think my Instagram handle's on there, on the things. You can send me questions if you have them about particular passages if you want. I'd love to, I would love to talk to you about Leviticus. Uh, okay, um, but, but I'm just going to try to summarize some stuff here. Okay, so here's, God's like, don't be like them. Be holy because I'm holy. And here's some of what that looks like starting in Leviticus 18, okay? Like, your sexual relationship should only happen in the covenant of marriage. You should honor your father and mother. You should keep the Sabbath. When you're harvesting from your fields, like, you guys might be into it when we start talking about sex because it's cultural hot topics. Nobody here is thinking about fields, probably. One of you, I grew up on a farm or something. But, but the rest of us are all like, I don't know what this has to do with me. Go back and answer hard questions. All of this is related to God saying, you guys need to look like me. Listen, listen. Try to imagine what this might mean, okay? Here's what it means to be holy. When you're harvesting from your fields, leave the edges so that when people wandering or people who are poor or hungry, they have something to eat. Do not steal or lie or gossip. Do not oppress your neighbor or withhold anything owed to somebody. Do not make things harder for people who are blind or deaf. Make your justice system just. Not favoring the rich or the poor, but be righteous in your judgment. Do not hate your brother and sister in your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Why? This is holiness. Why? Why should we do these things? Because I am holy, says the Lord. That's why. Why should we do these things? Because that's the kind of living which reflects the living God. Why should we live this way? Not to get right with God. These are people who've already been made right with him because of what he's doing in his atonement and his presence among them. They aren't called to live this way to get right with God or to keep him from getting mad at them or to get into heaven. They're called to live this way because of who he is. Because he is the Lord and this kind of life reflects him. That's why they should live this way. Because their very living and moving and being is telling the world a story about who God is. And they should live in a way that accurately reflects him. 
Many of us have grown up with images of God which have, been, which have warped our perspective of who He is. We've seen people bearing His name be really unkind or stingy or wrathful and they sin in their anger or their gossips. And we've come to believe that God maybe doesn't see the plight of the poor or doesn't know the loneliness that we experience in this world. And much of our, the, the sort of warped ways that we understand God are due to people who bear God's name not living like image bearers of Him. About 15 years ago, author David Kinnaman spent three years looking at more than a dozen nationally representative surveys, and he also did a series of his own interviews with a representative sample of 16 to 29-year-olds in the United States to try to understand the views that people have of Christians. What do young people who aren't Christians think about Christians? What do people who aren't Christians think about Christians? And he released his findings in a 2007 book called un Christian. And his findings were summarized under six broad themes. What do non-Christians think about Christians? Well, here we go. Christians are hypocritical, too focused on getting converts, anti-homosexual, sheltered, too political, and judgmental. The, the questions were literally just something like, hey, what words come to mind when you think of Christians? Hypocritical, too focused on conversion, anti-homosexual, sheltered, too political, judgmental. What if we flip the script? Let's take sex, for example. What if no Christian in our culture, what if no Christian participated in sexual abuse or infidelity? What if that was unheard of? How much would our families of origin have changed if that happened? How much less trauma would we experience in our communities? These are, infidelity and sexual abuse are rampant across the world. It's seemingly in every culture throughout time, but we are not called to live like the world. We are called to be different. And what if among Christians, infidelity and sexual abuse never existed? What would that communicate to the world about the God Christians worship? What if Christians didn't glean to the edge of their fields? In other words, what if the people of God never consumed all that they had stewardship of? What if we always lived like we had more than enough and there were leftovers for those in need around us, even in college? What would that communicate about the God Christians worshipped? What if Christians gave generously to the poor? In the United States, on average, right now, uh, U.S. citizens give 2.3% of their income away. That's what the average U.S. citizen gives. Okay? Christians do give more. It's 2.5%. What if we give 10, 20, or 50%? How much do we really need to live on? I understand you guys are in college, but, you, but you're in college, which means the odds are actually in your favor compared to the whole history of the world that you will have more than enough resources to steward throughout your life. That doesn't guarantee that most of you will. I'm just saying the odds are in your favor. <laughs> that sounds horrible, okay, if you've read the books. Okay, anyway. Uh, anyway, <laughs> wow, <laughs> save your money. Okay, interestingly, uh, so this might be an interesting fact for you, just in case you're like, well, when I make more, I'll be more charitable. In the United States, households that make over $75,000 a year collectively, which isn't a lot of money in, in American dollars today for some families, households that give over $75,000 or, or make that amount are actually the least charitable in the United States, which is poor giving more percentage-wise. What if that were flipped? 
It's not all bad, guys. I mean, the house is a, we're, like, the house is a nonprofit organization in, in Chattanooga, and we're funded in 100% by generous gifts. Okay? Um, I, people sometimes will be like, how do you work? Because you don't ask us for money. Well, people just give generously to the house, okay? Uh, four students did last year, which is fantastic. Um, and, and tons of individuals and churches and these kinds of things do, okay? I know a lot of people who give away a lot of wealth in order for us to minister to college students and to bless and influence all kinds of good work in this city and in this world. I know couples who give away more than 50% of their income personally. Last year, we had a five-year-old donate $3 to the house. It's my favorite gift all year. So the three $1 bills, uh, I don't want to say anymore. Okay, but it was just free and awesome because it was, I think it's supposed to be anonymous, but it was amazing. Okay, uh, but what if those stories were the norm and not the exception? That's the question. What kind of message would that communicate about God? Maybe it would tell the world that we believe that we're going to be taken care of. That whatever money we manage isn't actually ours. And that we have a responsibility and calling to care for each other and not just for ourselves with the resources that we manage. What if, we, what if when we encountered somebody in their sin, in their brokenness, we moved toward them and not away from them? What if we did that? What kind of message would that communicate about God? What if we were not people who gossiped or stole or lied? What if we didn't hate people in our hearts? What if you could trust that if I follow Jesus, I will never harbor bitterness and hatred against you in my heart, ever? What if we always treated each other's bodies with dignity and honor and never like they exist solely for our pleasure or consumption? What if we loved our neighbors as ourselves? These are not things which were happening in Egypt and Canaan. And God knew that the temptation of the Israelites was going to be to live like the people that they came from or like the people that they were going to live among. And he wanted them to be different, to be distinct, in a way which told a different story about the God of the universe, the God who isn't just holy, but holy, holy, holy. The God before whom there really are no other gods. Friends, this is our temptation too. To live like the places that we've come from. Or to live like the places we're about to go. And the command today is still upon our lives to be holy because God is holy. To live in such a way that people see our lives and give glory to God. God is not calling you to live under the definition of the good life that you grew up with. Honor your father and mother. You can read Leviticus 19 or actually a ton of the Bible. It's a massive command. Honor your father and mother. But you are not called to live under their rule. You are called to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. Love your neighbors and your enemies, but you are not called to live under the rule of a cultural movement or a trending fad or some Western version of success. You are called to live under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And that will mean you look a little different than the world. How you study will be different. Why you study will be different. How you choose roommates will be different. Why you choose roommates will be different. How looking at your life or looking at my life are people to see that we trust in something other than where we come from or where we're going in this culture. If your definition of the good life looks exactly the same as the culture, take a beat and look at what God is calling you to in holiness. You and I are image bearers of the king. 
And we're reflecting an image of the king whether we want to or not. The question is whether or not the image we're reflecting is telling a true story of who God is. You see, as I read through Leviticus, even these hard parts of Leviticus for us to sift through, I don't see a God who is hypocritical, judgmental, too focused on conversion, anti-homosexual, sheltered, and too political. I see a God who cares for the poor, who cares for the dignity and respect of people's bodies and the integrity of family units where people are intended to feel safe and nourished. A God who cares even for animals and for the land. Do you know that in Leviticus 19, God commands people to refrain from eating fruit from a tree for three years after it's planted. Respecting, this is like one of the commands, like of all the things he could have said, here's something. When you plant a tree, let it, let it be for three years. Do not rip fruit off those branches because you have a scarcity mindset. Respect that tree, respect that land, and trust that I'm going to provide for you in three years. What does that do when you can live that way? Being holy isn't about you getting right with God. It's about you reflecting the God who already made you right with Him. Being holy isn't about you getting right with God. It's about you reflecting the God who's already made you right with Him. That people see your life and your works and give glory to Him. And as we move out from things like this, from your core groups, from your Bible studies, from your worship services, from these gatherings where, where we get, where our sort of compasses get recalibrated. We remember again what it means to not chase after the fits and fashions and fads of the world, but we come under the reign and rule of Jesus. We say, Lord, I know I'm never going to be satisfied with those things. How do I come under you? I know that my friends are not going to satisfy me in all the ways that I want to be satisfied. I know that romance is not going to satisfy me in all the ways I want to be satisfied. I know that attention and social media is not going to satisfy me in all the ways I want to be satisfied. I, I know that power, good grades, money, a bank account, success, a house, these things are not in the end. I mean, generation after generation has testified to this fact. And every single one of us is looking at it and like, maybe I'm the first. Maybe I can be satisfied with these things, you know. And uh, we come back to our gatherings and stuff and we go, right, 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 right. No, no, no. Not the Egyptians, not the Canaanites. You, God, you, you. As we move out from here into our various stations in this campus and on this, in the, on this campus and in the city, like the Israelites moving out into the promised land, down from this mountain, we are called to be holy because God is holy, to reflect the one to whom we belong. And for some of us in this room tonight, before we can accurately reflect an image of God, we actually need our false images of God shattered. And I, I, I mean this, I am so sorry for the ways in which people might have not modeled God for you very well. And I suspect it probably wasn't modeled for them very well either. But tonight, God can break generational curses. He can change the course of history in your life right now. You are called to be a priest and a saint to the God Most High, and it can start now. Tonight may be a calling for you to trust that God actually does care for you and has abundant life in store for you. For all of us, tonight is an invitation to ask God how we might live like he's called us to live in order that the world might know him. That our roommates and our parents and our professors and our corporate members and our romantic interests and even those connected to us digitally would see how we live and give glory to God. Each week we take a minute of silence 
at the end of the sermon to just pause and reflect on how God might be speaking to each one of us. Most of us experience just so little silence. I know, I know, I, I mean, I wake up in the morning to my, my alarms on my phone. I got this amazing alarm that just never bothers me. It's amazing. Um, it always wakes me up. I love it. But that means I just look at my phone first thing in the morning. Before I go to bed, I set my alarm, so it's probably the last thing I see. And for most of us, it's probably the case. We have screens on and music in and people talking and stuff like that, like all over the place. We don't have much silence. So we take a little bit of silence on Tuesdays just to be present. How is God speaking to us? To give him thanks and ask him for help. God is holy above all things and he's called his people to live lives which reflect him. What is he calling you to tonight? Take a moment to respond to that and I'll close us in prayer in a minute.